Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Uh, Acts chapter 18 will be our text this Lord's Day as we uh, continue in our study in the book of Acts. I appreciate uh, Pastor Nick preaching last week so that uh, Sandy and I could enjoy some time together celebrating our 20th uh, wedding anniversary. So uh, we had a wonderful time. We were thankful for that time away and thankful to be uh, back here with you today, back in our study of Acts. Today we'll be in verse 18, uh, verses 18 through 28. Uh, just as a way of review, if you've been with us, you know that we are in the part of Acts where we've been studying through the missionary journeys of Paul. And so we had there in Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul being sent out on mission by the church, he and Barnabas, and, and they were sent out there from Antioch. And so basically Paul would go from city to city proclaiming the gospel, uh, seeing people come to faith in Christ and Oftentimes he would face great persecution. Uh, from there, he would then go on a second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts chapter 15, where uh, there's some division there in the church, but Paul and Silas uh, together go and minister. As you study these journeys, you find that with each journey, uh, Paul goes farther, uh, cost him more, he faces more danger. And so in that first journey, they covered about 1,500 miles, and the second journey, about 3,000 miles. And today, we come to a point in the text where they be, he will begin his third journey. This will be his longest, his costliest, and ultimately will take him to the point uh, where he then goes to, to be persecuted and often and suffer for his faith in Christ. And so as we look to this today, I just want to ask you to consider, as we read about Paul's missionary journeys, what was the point? <laughs> I mean, we know the gospel needed to spread, but but think specifically about what what we're looking at in the life of Paul. What was his strategy? What was his mission? And then look around and think about the church today. And ask yourself, is there a difference? I think there is. I think that perhaps we need to spend more time studying Paul and Acts to learn more of what God has called us to be even today. Because I think it's very easy for the church to lose her way. To lose her vision. To lose her focus on her mission. And I hope today that we might capture a bit of that as we walk through this Scripture together. So, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read for us this text, this Lord's Day. Acts chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 18, we're picking up now after the point that uh, Paul had been in Corinth and he had been there for 18 months and then he had faced that tri- that pro-council, been persecuted for his faith, and now we pick up in the story in Acts 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. I will return to you if God wills, he said. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. If you would pray with me, church. Father God, we ask that you might show us today that the Christ truly was Jesus, that we might come to a fuller and deeper understanding of the gospel, and Lord, that that gospel would then transform our lives. We ask this in Christ's name and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, my my sister and I, from time to time, uh, when we were getting along, we would play board games. Uh, now, for you children today, let me explain to you what a board game is. Uh, before we had iPads and iPhones and uh, Wii's and all these games on a screen, we actually had uh, boards that were games. I know that sounds very intriguing. But uh, we would spend hours playing these games, and perhaps you still play them today on your iPad or on your computer. But uh, one of the games that we enjoyed playing uh, was the game of life. Uh, perhaps some of you remember playing that game. Uh, something I've learned since then that's rather fascinating is that the game of life was actually uh, one of the earliest forms of the board game. It actually came over here to the United States in the late 1700s at that point, It was called the new game of human life. And the way that you uh, did well at that game was you focused on virtues over vices. And so the more efforts you made to uh, establish virtues in your life, the further along in the game you got, and and those vices would hold you back. Uh, The game's makers and designers then intended it to be a game where parents would play it with their children, and they would teach them, Uh, virtues in life and things that they should avoid and in fact the purpose the mission of the game was this a life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death god is at the helm and your reward lies beyond the grave it was a very eternally focused game but of course like all things even this game would change a man named milton bradley would pick it up in the 1860s and he would change it a bit And now you would move faster in the game by being honest and by being brave. If you were idle or you were disgraced, you would slow down. Game players sought to win wealth and success. Bradley said the game was intended to do this. A life is a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young in a spirit of friendly competition. Well, that game would change again in 1960 when it would receive the name most of us know it by, the the game of life. Uh, That would be the version that I would play with my sister. In fact, that version would sell 35 million copies, but it would be different than those original versions. No more vices and virtues. Simply the goal was to earn money. And then you would take that money to, to buy furniture and to prepare to have a family so that you could raise that family. And then the winner was the one at the end of the game who had the most stuff. The goal of the game then was to have the most things when you came to, and it called it, the Day of Reckoning. That game would be revised again uh, in 1990. No more focus on a family playing a game together or really even preparing to have a family. And now just to focus on game players. 
My focus also wasn't so much on money. It was more about in saving, saving endangered species, uh, solving pollution problems. Uh, cash prizes were awarded, but the focus was much more on each event more than an end in sight. And that is where the most recent revision of the game has focused. In 2011, Milton Bradley released a new game of life. Uh, players can do whatever they want and get rewarded for it. And so there's an equal value in donating a kidney to someone as there is in being risky and going scuba diving. <laughs> uh, the point of the game now is just to do something that brings you fulfillment. In fact, as the game makers have, makers have stated it, the mission of the game is do whatever it takes to retire in style. As you hear that, that timeline of the book of life, of the game of life, you probably notice some changes there. It started out as a game that focused on eternity. They really focused on preparing people for eternity. And now it's transitioned today to a game where simply you focus on doing whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. I think that game is very much representative of our culture. And sadly, I think to an extent, it's representative of the church today. There was a time when you could go into just about any church that called itself a church and you would hear a message that focused on repentance and the gospel and living in light of eternity now there's really no telling what you're going to hear when you walk into a church you might hear a message on improving your attitude you might hear a five-part series on how to better your bank account or you may hear someone talking about how you can live your best life now but what you often don't hear is a focus on the end. A focus that says each of us in this room shares the same fate. We will all die. The scripture says it is appointed once for us to die and after that comes judgment. And what so often we don't have in our churches today is a thought that perhaps with that judgment in mind we are to live our lives in light of eternity. And that should be reflective in how we live that should be reflective in, in what our church does and what the mission of our church is. It seems so many churches today, I think, have kind of gotten in a rut. We do the same things we've always done. We're kind of maintaining. We, we know how to do building programs, and we know how to do camps, and we know how to do trips. But oftentimes what doesn't get done is really focusing on the mission of what Christ has called His church to be. And so today as we walk through this portion of Acts, I want us to consider, are we Bloomfield Baptist Church, a church that is committed to doing what Christ has called us to do? Are we as members of this church, as we as followers of Christ, committed to being who Christ has called us to be? And so I want you to consider that for yourself, for your family, and for our church as we walk through this text today hopefully being reminded of what it is that God has called us to do, what our mission should be. We'll begin with point one there in your notes. Jesus has called us to make disciples, not decisions. Now, I'll explain more about the difference between those two, but first, it's important that we remember, Jesus said we are to make disciples. A portion of Scripture that I believe every believer needs to be familiar with, that should be underlined, highlighted, circled in your Bible, is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said there, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now he says here we are to make disciples. What does that mean? Well, Paul explains it a bit more in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so basically what Jesus has called us to do is to make disciples, to teach people who will teach others. This is not a foreign concept for most of us. A lot of you in our community, you'll, you'll recognize somebody and you might say, They're just like their father. Or they're just like their mother. Or they're just like their grandfather, grandmother. Why? Because oftentimes we carry characteristics, uh, attitudes, behaviors of those who went before us. Why? Because we lived with them. And, and we learned those things. And sometimes then we see that we replicate the very things that we were exposed to. Our children replicate those things. Uh, Sandy has mentioned to me multiple times, as I won't call out which child it is, but it's one of our sons. And she'll say, how does it feel to watch yourself grow up? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm watching myself grow up. Uh, because there are many similarities between the two. But we don't need to be taught how to disciple. We, we know how to disciple. We know how to teach people things. Many of you in your trade, in your work, you were a disciple. You, you learn from someone how to do the things you're doing. You might even mimic exactly what they did and the way they did it because that's how they taught you. The problem is, is that we've not applied that to the church of Jesus Christ. And fundamentally, that's what we've been called to do in the church. We've been called to take what we have been taught and to teach it to others. And so for some, we might come to church faithfully for decades and decades and we learn all this information. But the question is, what do we do with that? Well, the scripture says what we are to do with it is to find others to invest in them, to teach them the things that we've been taught. That's what it means to make a disciple. So we need to make disciples, not just decisions. And what I mean by that is this. We, we tend to focus so much in the church today, not so much on making disciples, but making decisions. And so what do we celebrate? We celebrate the person that walks the aisle. We celebrate the person who makes a decision to become a Christian. We celebrate the report from the mission trip where the missionary comes back and says, oh, we had this uh, great opportunity to preach and we had 400 decisions that night. And we celebrate those things. But where we need to be very careful is that we're not celebrating the wrong thing. See, I hope that those decisions then, learn, then transition into disciples, but they don't always do that. And that's evidenced by the membership role of every Southern Baptist church in our community. Do you realize we have over 800 members of our church? Now, on a, I realize you're at this service. Let me just explain. We don't have 700 in the first service. And some people might not come every week, but over 800 people. And some of you have been in this church or another church for a while. You've watched this happen. You've watched people come forward and make a decision for Jesus. You've watched people be baptized. But then within a week, a year, months, a few years, you look around and where are they? A lot of those 800, it's not that they just stop coming here. It's that they're not going anywhere. 
And it's because we've celebrated a decision they made rather than focused on making disciples of them. Well, what the scripture, I believe, calls us to is making disciples. Notice what we read here about Paul. In verse 18, it says, Paul stayed many days longer. <laughs> now think about that for a second. Uh, he is in Corinth. If you were with us when we talked about Corinth, Corinth is not the type of place you really want to hang out in. It's a wicked place. And he's already spent 18 months there. That's longer than he spent virtually anywhere else. Why would Paul stay in Corinth? Especially when you consider what had just happened. He had been carried before this proconsul. Agaleo wouldn't even let him speak. And then when he's done with him and tells him to get out of there, uh, one of his co-laborers in the gospel, Sosthenes, is brought in and beaten before the tribunal. Now, if you study Paul and you study his missionary journeys, you see a trend. When he gets beat or someone else gets beat, it's time to go. And so usually that's when they get in the boat and they go to the next town, the next city, or they go on the next journey. But here, Luke notes that he didn't do that. Why? Well, I think the reason is because Paul was focused on discipling these new believers in Corinth. That Paul was not content with just writing back to the church at Antioch and saying, oh, here's my numbers. But he really wanted to disciple. That's what you'll see Paul do in this third missionary journey. He will be returning to cities he's already been to. Why? So that he can strengthen, so that he can disciple those believers there. And we see him specifically doing this with a a couple, Priscilla and Aquila. If you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about Priscilla and Aquila. We're introduced to them in Acts 18, verse 1. At that point, we know that they're Jews and we know that they're tent makers. So they, they share the same heritage as Paul. They share the same trade as Paul. So that's their connection. There's really no mention that they were faithful followers of Jesus at that point. But notice what happens. They go from just being fellow Jews, fellow tent makers in verse 1 to by the time we get to verse 18, now they're co-laborers in the gospel ministry. What's happened between those verses? Well, I think what we see here is Paul's dedication to disciple this couple, to teach them the things he'd been taught. And I think that's reinforced when you read their names in other portions of the Scripture. In Romans, as Paul writes, listen, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. He doesn't tell us the details there, but apparently there's a situation where Priscilla and Aquila put their lives on the line for the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's not one who's afraid to call out folks when they abandon the faith. But he doesn't mention that about Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, he'll mention them in 1 Corinthians 16. He'll mention them in 2 Timothy 4. And in both places, he'll mention their faith. And he'll mention that the church is gathering in their home. So what we see happening here is that Paul is investing his life, his ministry, in this couple who will then be able to invest their lives, their ministry, into others. Now just a side note here. You see there in verse 18 it says that Paul had cut his hair for he was under a vow. We don't know all the details of that. Luke doesn't tell us. It could have been a Nazarite vow. It could have been a a Thanksgiving vow. Basically I think what Luke is trying to tell us there, and this will become very important in the latter part of Acts, is that Paul's still a Jew. (laughs) Paul is still practicing his Jewish tradition, and that's important. It'll become more important later in our study, but just to note that for now. And so Paul does that. He cuts his hair. He finishes this vow, and then he goes on to Ephesus. But notice what happens here. In verse 19, he came to Ephesus, and then he leaves them there. So why would Paul 
invest all this time into Priscilla and Aquila, uh, go to another city to share the gospel, and then just leave them there. I think what we see Paul doing here is is the fruition of Paul's ministry. Paul has poured his life into this couple. He has taught them the things he knows, and now he's entrusted the gospel to them so they can go out and teach others as well. That's what discipleship is. Teaching others who will be faithful then to teach others in turn. And that's what we see Paul doing here. And that's what I believe God has called you and I to do here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. We're not called to be a church that simply focuses on decisions. So that we can give an annual report saying, well, look how many people made a decision here. We're called to be a church that disciples believers. Mom and Dad, you're you're called to be parents who who disciple your kids. Kids, you're called to be disciples of your parents. You should listen to them, and especially their instruction about the Lord. And then all that you learn, you're to take them one day to teach other people. And here's the thing about that. We never get to a point in the Christian life where we graduate from learning about Jesus and telling others about Jesus. That brings us to the second point there in your notes. A disciple of Jesus is a lifelong student of the gospel. So you don't get to a point where you say, well, I pretty much learned everything there is to learn in the Bible. (laughs) I don't really go to church anymore because I pretty much learned all that. In fact, I'll ask people at times about folks they've invited to church. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, I invited so-and-so pastor, but they already know the Bible really well. I mean, they know everything there is to know about the Bible. Obviously, they don't know everything. The Bible actually says, don't neglect gathering together. <laughs> There's one verse we could point out to them in their vast knowledge they have. Now, what often that is, is it's that we're intimidated because maybe somebody knows a few verses we don't know or, or they appear real religious or real spiritual. But what the Scripture actually says to us is that you and I are to be lifelong students of the gospel. We don't get to a point when we graduate. Notice what Paul does here. Paul continues in verse 22 and 23 to to go to places he's been. And at the end of verse 23, it says specifically, he was strengthening all the disciples. Now think about that term for a second. I got a little surprise maybe for some of you. I don't spend a lot of time at the gym. I know, shocking, shocking. Some of us, we just don't have to. But I've seen the commercials, and, and I've talked to some of you who have to go. And, and this is what I've figured out. When you go to a gym to work out and get in shape, you, you usually don't go and get to this point where you say, well, I'm done now. <laughs> you know, I lost the weight I need to lose, or I'm, I'm in the shape I need to be in, so it's just nothing but the couch and chips for me from now on. <laughs> doesn't work that way. If you want to stay in shape, what do you have to do? You have to keep going. You have to keep strengthening yourself. Uh, Paul here is going back to teach people, uh, not saying to them, well, you already know it all. Let me just remind you, no. He's just continuing to teach them about the gospel so that they come str- become stronger in their faith. The reason that so many people in our churches today are so weak in their faith is because they're sitting on the couch eating chips spiritually. It's because we spend so little time outside of this hour in church 
or hour and 20 minutes, reading this, learning this, teaching others about this. And Christian, that's our fundamental call as believers. And we never graduate from it. We are always called to be students. And that's something we need to learn because when we think about learning something, we often think about associating that with graduating from something. And so somewhere in a box somewhere, there's a diploma I got from high school. I graduated. I finished. On the wall in my office, there's a diploma from North Carolina State University because I I graduated. I, I finished my studies. Beside that, there's a diploma from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with my graduate degree. I finished, I was done, I completed my studies. Pastor Matt's going further than that. He, by God's grace in December, will receive his doctorate degree. He will then be the Reverend Dr. Matt Thompson, or as he wants to be called, the Reverend Dr. Maestro Matt Thompson. But he'll be finished. And he's very glad he'll be finished, as is Tori. We think about school that way. We think about we learn and we accomplish and we finish and now we'll move on to the next thing. It's very different though when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus. Because you don't get a diploma to hang on your wall that says you're done. What you get is a lifetime to study his word and the gospel and to learn about it and to learn from it and to live according to it until the day that you shut your eyes and I shut mine and we breathe our last breath and when we open them up, we're standing there face to face in front of Jesus. And until that point, every one of us is called to be a lifelong student. You, you ever wonder how you can know if someone even is a disciple or even is a Christian? We, we usually stay away from that topic because the first thing people use say, well, who am I to judge? And I can't really see a person's heart. But you realize the scripture actually talks about that quite a bit. Talks about how you and I can know if we're actually disciples of Jesus, how we can know if others are. Listen to what we read in 1 John 2. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But if whoever keeps His word and in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him, whoever he abides, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we're told there real clearly, we can know someone's a disciple by what? By them keeping the commandments of the scripture. So here's a question. How can we keep commandments if we don't even know what they are? It says we can know if we're a disciple if we walk in the way that Jesus walked. So question, how... How can we walk in the way Jesus walked if we don't even know the way Jesus walked? See, in our culture, we're more apt to ask questions like this. What would Jesus do? Because you don't have to really read the Bible a lot to answer that question. You basically can just come up in your mind this idea. Well, if Jesus was sitting at this stoplight and someone Uh, ran out in front of him a bunch of times, what would Jesus do? And then we try to pretend, well, I guess Jesus would do this, so I need to do this, so on and so forth. So what would Jesus do? We can answer that, or at least we think we can. Do you realize the Scripture doesn't ever encourage us to ask that question? Rather, the question we're to ask is, what did Jesus do? 
And that's recorded historically in his word. And by learning what Jesus did, then we can learn what we are supposed to do. See, the call from Scripture is not that, that, that we need to suddenly become perfect people. Please don't walk out of here today thinking that I'm saying to you, you need to become perfect. The call from Scripture is to trust in the one who is perfect. See, being perfect, Jesus deserved no death on a cross. Being sinful, every one of us did. And the great exchange takes place on the cross where Jesus, being fully righteous and perfect, went to the cross to die in our place. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness. It's, it's a wonderful deal for us. But it's not just a decision. It's a day-by-day walk to become a disciple. And if you have no interest in that, if there's nothing that ever compels you to open up his word and learn from him, if you don't feel a deep sense of conviction when you disobey him, then the indication from Scripture is you're lost. And the reality is you will stand before him one day. And like many others, you will say to him, Lord, Lord, did I not do? And you'll go through your resume. And the Scripture says he will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. Friends, that's pretty serious stuff. And I think that's worth us taking a moment to consider. Are we truly disciples of Jesus? Or we do, do we just have this false sense of assurance because we have a baptism certificate? Or because our name's on a roll in a church? I'm not belittling those indications of faith, but what I'm saying is if that's all you've got, you don't have anything. Here we see Paul doesn't focus on people raising their hands or praying a prayer. He focuses on strengthening them and discipling them. And in doing that, realizing people are going to be at different places in their faith. And we're, we're made aware of one here in the scripture named Apollos. Verse 24 there, Paul now has left Ananias and Sapphira there in Ephesus and they encounter this man named Apollos. The scripture tells us, Luke records, that Apollos was from Alexandria. It tells us he was an eloquent man. He, he, he was competent in the Scriptures. Now remember, that means the Old Testament. So he knew the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. What that means is that he knew what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. He knew that a Messiah was coming. He knew what the Messiah would do based on what the Scripture said. Now, as you read on, Luke doesn't give us all the details. It says he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord He spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. What that tells us is that we don't know what level of understanding Apollos had about the gospel, but we know it wasn't a full understanding. And we know that he was familiar with Jesus, probably the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Perhaps he knew the Sermon on the Mount. He knew the instruction of Jesus. But the indication here is he didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus He didn't know about the promise of the Holy Spirit that we've learned about in the beginning of Acts. He didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. So notice what happens. As he is calling people to repentance, but but not fully understanding the gospel, Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they take him aside, and they explain to him the gospel. That's what discipleship is. 
It's teaching people what you've been taught so they can turn and teach others. And it's amazing what you see happen because Apollos now will become a central figure in the New Testament church as he will take what he's been taught and he'll go out and he'll teach many others. But you notice here it's, it's a process and it never ends. But the, the wonderful thing about this is what it leads to, point three there. Discipleship results in a ministry of multiplication. Discipleship results in a ministry of multiplication. Just step back for a second and look at the big picture here. Paul is able to teach. Why? Because he's been taught. Who, who taught Paul? Jesus and the disciples. So Paul takes what he's learned from Jesus and the disciples. And in this chapter, what does he do? He specifically invests in this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what do we see them do? They take what they've been taught by Paul, and they in turn go and teach Apollos. Now, notice what Apollos does, verses 27 and 28. He goes to Achaia, that's Corinth. And there in Corinth, he, he finds those who had already responded to the gospel. So again, there's a decision there, but he focuses on discipling them. It says that he helps them greatly. That he shows the scriptures to them and others and how the Christ was Jesus. So what you see happening here is a ministry of multiplication instead of a ministry of addition. And sadly, friends, so often what we have in our churches today is a ministry of addition. We focus on adding people. Adding them to our roles. Uh, adding them to our numbers. And so I want you to think about these two things as we close today. The difference between a ministry of addition and a ministry of multiplication. Uh, Let's imagine for a second that I was really good at the ministry of addition part. So we've got, in a given year, I'm going to give you a little math problem here. How many Sundays do we have in a given year? 52, okay, some years 53, all right, you're doing pretty good so far. So let's say, let's just round that out, have a couple of bad Sundays, let's just go with 50, that's easier. So let's say that I was able to add, to have six people every Sunday walk this aisle and make a decision for Jesus. So that happened, six every Sunday for 50 Sundays, how many would that be? 300, y'all are waking up now, all right, so we got 300, and and. Remembering, I don't go to the gym so much, but, you know, I'm in such great shape. I've got at least, you know, 40 more years of this. So if I do this 40 years, and I see 300 people a year make those decisions, at the end of the next 40 years, what number do we have? All right. Yes, you're right. 12,000. Get out your calculator watch, kids. We had those before our iPods, too. So now 12,000, that's pretty good, you know. Pastor Richard Carr, he, he reached 12,000 people. That, that's pretty good, isn't it? Sad thing is, that's only about a fourth of the county we live in. Still a lot of people to reach. You, you know how many years it would take through a ministry of addition to reach 7.3 billion people? A lot of years. That's the math answer there. Now think of it this way. In the ministry of multiplication, you see people invest in others who then invest in others. So rather than just focusing on those decisions, what if rather I focus on three people? (laughs) And 
and I'm going to minister to the church, and I'm going to, I'm going to focus on the church, but I'm specifically going to pull aside three people in the midst of that during a year, and I'm just going to teach them everything that I've been taught as best I can with the understanding that each of them at the end of that year is going to go disciple three people as well. So year one, there's three. Year two, if three people each invest in three more, how many is that? Nine. You guys are really bad at math. Or really hungry. So I'll give you more math problems. So if nine people each invest in three more people, at the end of another year, what's that number? 27, okay. So fast forward a few years. If you take 27 people in just seven years, if they keep this process up, remember in each year, one invest in three, each of them invest in three, you go from 27 to seven years later. Anybody want to guess? That's a really good guess. 59,000. That's our county. That's folks outside of our county. So you keep this up. And you go a few more years. If we started this in 2015, in 2032, that's 17 years from now, we'll reach 387 million people. That's the population of our country, plus a few million. And you can pretty much figure out where this is going. You keep that process up. You keep multiplying ministry. And from 2015 to 2035, in 20 years, 10 billion people what you reach there's 7.3 billion today think about that if the church continues in this understanding that we're just supposed to add people and focus on decisions and then the next decision the next decision the next decision we will not reach the world with the gospel of jesus we've been doing that for 2,000 years but if we will take seriously the call of christ to make disciples then the impact in the world of just this one little old church in Bloomfield, Kentucky, would so echo through eternity that millions of people would be reached with the gospel of Jesus. I think that's worth investing our time, our study, and our resources in. And my encouragement to you today would just be simply to stop and ask the question, are you a decision or are you a disciple? (laughs) Are you committed to this? Are you just kind of staying on the sidelines? Because it's a question every one of us needs to ask. And if you are a disciple, then look around. Who is there that you can pour into and you can teach? Parents, it's not the fundamental job of the church to disciple your kids. It's it's your job. That's a great opportunity right there in front of you to disciple those kids in your home. But it doesn't need to stop there. Pull aside somebody in your Sunday school class, somebody at work. Sit down, open up the scriptures. I'm so encouraged when I hear people share testimonies like that in our church of people they're sitting down with in their workplace and at lunchtime they're just having a Bible study with them. That's discipleship. And look for those opportunities. Because unlike that illustration I gave earlier, life is not a game. This is real. And God has called us to make disciples. And so I hope you will pray with me that that is what we will do as Bloomfield Baptist Church. If you would pray with me. Father God, we do ask that you would empower us 
through your Holy Spirit to be a disciple-making church. And Lord, I thank you for disciples that have been made here. I thank you for those who are walking faithfully with Christ as a result of the gospel they were exposed to here. But Lord, I know it's, it's very comfortable for us not to disciple, for us just to focus on decisions, focus on getting people to walk an aisle. Lord, we, we should celebrate when someone walks a aisle. We should celebrate when they're baptized, but Lord, we shouldn't end there. And so help us, Lord, to be a church that takes seriously these who make decisions and that from them we make disciples. I pray for each person in this room, Lord, that they would seriously consider in this moment the gospel and whether they've truly responded to it or not. And Lord, that another night wouldn't go by before they would get on their knees and call out to you as Lord and repent if they've not done that. And I pray that we would be a church who would be serious about taking this gospel and making disciples in our community, in our nation, and in the nations. And we can only do this. We can only do this in the name of Christ our Lord and in the power of His Spirit. So Lord, would you do that work in us and through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.